Welcome to Songcraft, conversations with great songwriters. I'm Paul Duncan. And I'm Scott B. Bomar. Songcraft brings you in-depth interviews with the men and women who've put pen to paper, hands to keyboards, and fingers to strings to create lyrics and music that stand the test of time. You probably know their names, and you definitely know their songs. We bring you their stories. You can hear all our episodes, check out our bonus content, sign up for our email list, and contact us directly at songcraftshow.com. Also, please take a moment to like us at facebook.com slash songcraftshow and follow us on Twitter at songcraftshow. You're listening to Chain of Love, a number one country single by Clay Walker that was co-written by our guest on this episode of Songcraft, Rory Feek. The singer-songwriter has penned additional number one country hits, including Colin Ray's Someone You Used to Know, Blake Shelton's Some Beach, and Easton Corbin's A Little More Country Than That. Other songs from his catalog that have landed in the top 20 are Tracy Bird's The Truth About Men, Blaine Larson's How Do You Get That Lonely, and Jimmy Wayne's I Will. The list of artists who've recorded Rory's songs includes Kenny Chesney, Randy Travis, Reba McIntyre, Trisha Yearwood, Mark Wills, Waylon Jennings, Charlie Pride, The Oak Ridge Boys, John Michael Montgomery, Terry Clark, and Lori Morgan. In 2008, Rory formed the duo Joey and Rory with his wife, Joey Martin Feek, for the CMT show Can You Duet? Their popularity led to an ACM award for Top New Vocal Duo of the Year, their own TV show, eight successful albums, and a handful of charting singles, including the self-penned songs Cheater Cheater and That's Important to Me. Rory's identity as a storyteller extends beyond his songs to include screenplays, TV scripts, and a popular blog which earned a loyal following as he shared his family's pain, triumphs, fears, and deep personal faith during Joey's battle with terminal cervical cancer. The duo's final album, Hymns That Are Important to Us, was released in 2016, less than a month before Joey passed away at age 40. It debuted at number one on Billboard's Country Albums chart, was certified gold, and earned the duo a Grammy for Best Roots Gospel Album. Rory's memoir, This Life I Live, chronicles his spiritual journey, his love story with Joey, and his disarmingly vulnerable musings on his role in what he calls God's larger story. Well, before we jump right into this interview... Um you know what's really cool is we've been doing some some episodes sponsored by Pearl Snap Studios, yep. and some of our listeners have been going to Pearl Snap and getting some demos done, and they sound great. Yeah, I've actually uh, we've had listeners send us some of the demos that they've uh, had Pearl Snap do for them, and uh, and I am glad to say that Pearl Snap did just as good a job as uh, we told them they would. Very cool stuff. Yeah, well, it's always great for us to be known as men of our word, and we told you it was good. <laughs> Occasionally we are. Occasionally we are men of our word. <laughs> um, but we want to remind you guys again that Pearl Snap Studios is your place to go when you want to have a, a great demo made. Um, they can do a full-blown demo, a guitar vocal, whatever it is you want. And you don't have to live in Nashville, L.A., New York, or whatever. They can work remotely. Just send your stuff in. Yeah. So, um, And if it's the first time and you mention that you heard about them on Songcraft, then you get a discount. I believe it's $25 off. And so why wouldn't you do it? Why, just go write a song so yeah. you have a reason. Even if you've never written a song, you should write a song today yep. just so you can get a great demo done at Pearl Snap. <laughs> I mean, I like it. So, yeah. And that, now you know that we're men of our word. And um, so... PearlSnapStudios.com. Yep. Thanks to Pearl Snap for, for doing great work. Um, and we got another great episode coming up today with Rory Feek. Absolutely. Yeah, this is... Uh, this is a good one. Uh, Rory is is a Renaissance man in a lot of ways, and uh, boy, he's he's been through some some really intense things. Uh, yeah. And and you know, we we talk about his book throughout the um, interview, but uh, it's something that I think people should consider checking out. It really is a, a, a dynamic read. I was um, really impressed with how raw some mm. of the book was. It's uh, it was put out by a. Um, by a Christian publisher, and you know sometimes Christian books have a reputation; they can be a little um, sanitized. sanitized. Yeah. yeah, a little sanitized. Um, but man, he doesn't hold back. Mm. He he shares the full range of his emotions, and there was some stuff in there that I was like, "Wow, that's really cool." They let him be this raw and real. Yeah. Um, and uh, just a, a yeah, good book. And so we're actually going to do um, a giveaway um, for the book. So if You'd be interested in reading it yourself, which I highly recommend. Uh, you can go to our website, songcraftshow.com. There's a uh, tab at the far right of the upper part of the page that says Rory. Click on that, and it'll give you instructions on how you can enter to win your own copy of This Life I Live, which is uh, Rory's memoir. And I think without any further ado, let's just get right to hearing from him. Yeah. Rory, welcome to Songcraft. I appreciate you having me. 
Well, we've both uh, been reading your book, This Life I Live, which was released back on Valentine's Day. And it's a really engaging spiritual autobiography, um, you know, the story of your faith, the, the love between you and Joey, and some of the really challenging stuff that you've faced. Um, early on in the book, you write, we had a perfect at-home birth that a few hours later turned into a horrific surgery for my wife and a diagnosis of Down syndrome for our baby daughter. A few months later, my siblings and I watched our mother pass away right before our eyes. And the year after that, I held my wife's hand as cancer took her, and I had to pick up our two-year-old daughter, Indiana, and somehow go on. Now, your writing, like your songwriting, comes from a, a place of integrity and, and really vulnerability. Um, whether it be a, a script or a song or your blog or this book, what role does the actual act of writing play in your process of thinking through or reflecting on your own life experiences? Well, I, I think for me, you know, I, I don't ever know what I'm writing. You know, I, might, yeah. I just sort of, whether I'm writing a song or a script or a book or whatever it is, I just I just start writing. I might I might have an idea that I'm going to write about my daughter's birthday or right. or. Christmas, our last Christmas that Joey and I and Indy spent together, mm. but I don't know what the story is going to tell. I definitely don't don't know what the um, the overarching you know point of it is. Right. And so I tend to learn all those things as I go. And yeah. So um, that's a very similar to songwriting. You know, just with the book, is I I don't know what I'm going to say, and I also don't know how it's going to impact me and what I'm going to, what I'm going to learn. Right. I mean, I know that it's a chance for other people to learn about my life and the things that I, I've learned, but I'm learning them as I'm writing them. Sometimes mm. the, the, the process of writing actually reveals a lot to me. Too. Yeah. Most of the time it does. That actually, that makes a lot of sense. Just kind of that verbalization being a, a part of the process itself. I, I, it isn't like I, I come to writing with this knowledge of, this is what I'm going to say and why I'm going to say it. It's really more about, I think I have, I have something inside that needs said. Right. And maybe I'm, because I'm the first reader or the first listener of the song, um, then if it moves me and uh, I learn something, then I'm, I'm hope, hopeful right. that somebody else would too. Yeah. You know, your, your book is like a spiritual autobiography that I think would probably appeal to a wide range of folks from the most devout to, you know, people who have never even set foot in a church. Uh, and I think that that appeal is the direct result of your honesty. Um, your spiritual journey isn't completely linear. There are advancements and setbacks along the way, and there are questions, you know, you're basically pretty real in the book about your own triumphs and failings and the power of forgiveness, the messiness of life. You know, I, I find that really refreshing. And I'm somebody that works in the Christian music industry as a writer, um, and I'm well aware of the concept of kind of the gatekeepers in, in the Christian market and some of the things that may, you know, that will say that they say, oh, that's not quite Christian enough, or that's not, you know, that's maybe a little too, too harsh for our audience. Um, but there are some moments in the book that, man, I was like, these are real and really raw, and I wondered if, if those gatekeepers had a hard time with that. Did you ever have any fights with your publisher on, no, I really want to include this, or were you kind of free to just write the way you wanted to write? I was free to write what I wanted to write completely and mm. totally. As a matter wow. of fact, they, they didn't even know what it was I was going to write. They, wow. they were kind enough to say uh, that I didn't have to write what I've already written in the blog, or mm. they, they didn't expect me to write a book about the last five months of Joey and I's life and yeah. cancer journey only. Yeah. And so when I said I'd like to start at the beginning and write about my life before I met Joey, they had no idea if there's any story there whatsoever, yeah. let alone how it would tie into the rest of it. Yeah. And so, you know, I didn't turn in anything until I turned in everything. Wow. And they, they were really, really, um, I think, surprised and excited about what I had written, and they, the, the main publisher, his name is Matt Baher, he was very protective of what I've written because mm. he felt like I've developed a voice through my blog and my other writing, and he wanted me to be able to continue to have that. So That's great. there was literally only one paragraph, it was really like one long paragraph that he encouraged me to omit, and that was, you know, that was really just because I gave more detail than it needed to be, but it wasn't. It wasn't because it was going to offend gatekeepers yeah. or anything <laughs> right. like that. 
he he was actually I think he found it very very refreshing and he wow. thought at least it seemed like he thought that's part of why um, there is an audience paying attention is that I that I'm I'm honest and because Joey and I have not worked you know we don't consider ourselves Christian hmm. uh, singers or singer songwriters right. yeah uh, working within that industry we we just um, we just are ourselves and so we we sing country music, or we used to sing country music, and we sing about our faith, and we sing about our lives, and, and we made fun of ourselves, and we made, you know, we were married, so we, we got to write suggestive things, because it was fun, and we're human beings, <laughs> yeah. and all those things, and there was no gatekeepers anywhere, and so I, I felt like I should just keep doing what we naturally do, and they have been very supportive. Um, matter of fact, in the end, on the editing process, they went through and did a copy edit on the whole book and wanted me to, to, you know, approve. And I couldn't even get through a, a whole chapter. It was too much for me. Like I, yeah. I just, I didn't even see myself anymore. So I went back to the publisher and just said, you know, you either have to let me, let me do it the way I do it. Or, um, just if you feel like it needs to be this way, you guys are the publishers, knock yourself out, but <laughs> I cannot help you with it. <laughs> and he, in the end, he just made all of the editing go away. And he said, let's keep it exactly how you have it. And wow. they just fixed some grammatical things. That's great. And a lot of the grammatical things they left in there because they thought they were, you know, the, the mistakes were part of it's how part, I speak. Yeah, so part of your voice. I don't know so, if that yeah. happens every day, but um, for me, it was another, another great part of the process was not only the writing of the book, getting to be as authentic and honest as I could be, but also everything in the editing and, and the delivery of the book, they they made it as great as it can be. And so I feel like it, it it's had the chance to land in stores mm. and in people's hands as pure as a book could possibly be. Very cool. I mean, that's, that's refreshing in and of itself to hear about that kind of, you know, even like post-writing process where the, where the editing could be handled with such care. Um, and such re yeah. you know, respect for, for you as a writer. Um, and it seems like that freedom yeah, kind really of begets is. honesty. I think so. Um, I'm not worried about, you know, I'm not worried about offending. Uh, I mean, I, there's times I, I think I write somewhere in there. It's like I, I think when I write this or I, maybe early on in the book, I said, you know, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to disappoint some people with mm. the things that I'm going to say. Mm, yeah. But the truth is I'm disappointed in myself. Mm. And so... Uh, I think that if you take that approach and you're not you're not just trying to share the very best of you, right. then I don't think you have to worry about it. Uh, at least I I don't think so. My biggest thing was I just I didn't want to hurt anyone in the process. Right. Mm. I I don't mind being the bad guy because I feel like I, I am the bad guy. But mm. I'm also, you know, I'm someone who's who's seen the power of redemption and and how God can continue to work in our lives, and so. Um, I just the, probably the only fear that I had was I didn't I didn't want to hurt anybody yeah. I didn't want to be truthful to where it hurt somebody I only wanted to hurt me. Mm. You know, one of the topics that you're very transparent about in the book is your complex and and sometimes strained relationship with your father who kind of dropped in and out of your life when you were growing up. Um, but there's this scene when you were eight years old where he pulled the car over and he made you give your full attention to a song on the radio. Tell us about that moment and what role your relationship with your dad played in your career path as a songwriter. My dad was um, a fan of country music and a singer himself. He was really a great singer. He could have, he could have been successful. And mm. I, I'm not just saying that because it's my dad. I mean, I, I know what the industry is, and yeah, I know sure. I know where he would have stood up within everybody else. Yeah. But he never came here. You know, he had responsibilities in a life and worked for the railroad. And so his dream really just stayed in the bedroom. It stayed with him sitting on a couch or on the end of a bed playing guitar. And, yeah. and he was passionate about it. We gathered around the television when I was visiting or spending time with Dad, and we watched the CMA Awards. And you might as well uh, have been watching, you know, the biggest event in the world. For hmm. us, that was that was as big as it got, and we sat yeah. around and watched it, and his passion transferred to me mm. really early on. And one of the ways it did was when I was a boy, we were crossing the railroad tracks. I was riding in the car with him in this old Buick, and a song came on the radio by Gene Watson called mm. Farewell Party. And oh, yeah. I, I guess that's maybe the 70s, somewhere around there. Right. 
And um, my dad wanted me to hear that song, and it wasn't enough for him just to turn up the radio. He pulled over on the shoulder of the road and parked. He mm. sat in park for his little boy to listen to the words, every bit of it, and wow. the, the steel guitar solo. And, and, and it was the strangest thing, because while the other fathers and sons were driving by in their cars, were sitting there mm. listening, and it was clear that it... Uh, that that music meant a lot to him, yeah, and right. so it soon meant a lot to me. Mm. So I spent most of my life really dreaming about doing what he dreamed about doing. Yeah. And then uh, as I got older, I think I just maybe took a few more steps to reach those goals than he ever got a chance to. Well, as you describe in your memoir, you grew up in a low-income, basically single-parent family and, and moved around constantly. Um, and there's this theme of wandering and, and bouncing around to different places, which um, included a stint eventually in the military as a young man, uh, followed by a move to Texas, where you were playing in bar bands most every night. Um, and you took something away from that experience that struck me. You said in your book, I learned about writing great songs by singing great songs. Um, tell us what you mean by that. Well, for a lot of years, I kind of thought, oh, man, this isn't really what I want to do. I, I don't want to sing everybody else's song. I want to sing my own song. So I kind of thought I was I was actually sort of failing or huh. I was having all this uh, time that was unpurposeful right. of me playing in clubs, although, you know, it, there were good things about it. Uh, a lot of it I didn't enjoy because it was just a hard life and it wasn't mm. going to go anywhere because yeah. I, I wasn't even playing. I wasn't part of a really successful band hmm. yeah. that was doing well. I was playing by myself for a bunch of people that weren't even paying, not even a bunch of people, a few people <laughs> who weren't paying attention yeah, I've been there most of the time. <laughs> yeah. And, um, but what I realized when I came to Nashville, I, I had... I had an understanding of the music that most most young songwriters didn't have. I had yeah. an understanding of what a great song was because I had been singing great songs mm. night after night after night. Sure. And you start to feel the rhymes that those writers put in there on purpose. And you yeah. could feel the setup and delivery of certain lines that are there. And you could you, you knew a great opening line of a song. And all those things, I think, played into into my gift later on without even realizing it. Yeah. I, was, huh. I was learning something I didn't know I was learning. Well, yeah, you, you sort of uh, provide your mind with a constant reminder of what the standard is. Yeah. It's like, I, I just sang He Stopped Loving Her Today. You know, that's the <laughs> standard. I've, I, I, I've got to look at that as sort of a, a benchmark. Um, yeah. You know, and, and by the mid-1990s, you had settled in Nashville with your two daughters who you were raising as a single dad, and you had obviously figured out at that point how to write a great song because you landed a publishing deal as a staff songwriter for Harlan Howard's company. Um, Harlan, of course, is best known for writing Busted, Heartaches by the Number, I, mean, I Fall to Pieces, I mean, a million other country standards. How did you connect with him and ink that first publishing contract, which is a dream for so many aspiring writers? Well, I hadn't been here that long, and I knew a, I had a friend who had a friend who knew Harlan. Mm. And he really only knew Harlan, uh, this guy only knew Harlan, I think, really because they, they drank at the same place. <laughs> I ended up going to this place where this guy said, Harlan Howard's going to be on one evening. It was called Sunset Grill, and I just sat down with my friend. But Harlan came walking in, and he sat down right next to me and started talking to me. And we just you know, kind of hit it off, and we talked huh. and talked. And, and talking with Harlan, he was holding court sort of with me, and then it, more people started coming in. And talking and drinking are pretty much one and the same for Harlan, or at least they were at that time. <laughs> it was just kind of what he did, and that's where he went for song ideas. He wrote oh. almost all of his songs and song ideas on bar, bar napkins. Wow. <laughs> so he, somewhere in the night, by, by later in the evening, it was him, and there was probably... 30 people gathered around, and he, right before he left, he looked at me and said, I could use a good young writer like you. Why don't you come <laughs> visit me? And he wow. pointed. He said, I have a publishing company. He pointed across the room, and and for me, he might have been drinking a lot, and he didn't mean it, but I took that as a direct invitation to yeah. go play him songs. <laughs> sure. The next day, I drove to... I drove to that part of town, I got dropped off, and then I kept walking down Music Row until I got to where I thought he pointed, 
and I saw a gardener outside, somebody working on the flowers and stuff, and I said, is Harlan's office nearby? And they told me where it was. I buzzed in, and the receptionist, I told her that Harlan had invited me to come in and play him some songs, and and she kindly said, oh, he invites everybody, but, but you know, he doesn't have time for that. Mm. And so she was kind of <laughs> ushering me out the door. Jeez. And he he heard me in the hallway, mm. and and I heard a voice coming from the office, and he invited me to come in. And so I sat down, and I played him a couple of songs, and he invited his wife, Melanie, to come in there, and they both sat and listened to me play. And within no time, I, I was signed to him. Wow, And I wrote for amazing. his company for five years, and he mentored me Jeez. through all that time. That's so amazing. I, I, I never get tired of hearing people's stories uh, about Nashville and about kind of how those, those type of steps are taken because every story is so unique. Every story is so different. There's no path that you could say, this is the career path. This is how you make it as a writer. You know, it happens in those kind of seemingly random moments uh, mixed with persistence, yeah. right? I mean, mm. I, I, think that's, I think that's a big part of it is you have to have done the work and be prepared. Yeah. And then you have to take your shots, and you have yeah. to realize that every time you take a shot, um, you know, I could have just as easily walked down that street, tried to find his office and not found it, yeah. or got, you know, found myself in the in the hallway and ushered out and right. him not be there at that moment. There could have been a million mm. things happen, but it has it has to start with you with you showing up. Yeah. And and then that gives God, I think it gives God something to work with because mm. he, he does all the magic. But if you don't show up, you don't give him, you know, the room to do what God does best, I think. And yeah. so for me, I my life is really just a, a continual story of showing up and showing mm. up and showing up. And sometimes yeah. I, I'll be in a room. I told a story the other day about a song of mine called Chain of Love that I had sang, it became a bit years later, but this is not long after I was writing for Harlan, and, and this church I was at invited me to come sing the song, and I knew this song was special. Mm. And I sang it at this church, and and I was walked off to the back of the stage. It was actually in a middle school at the time. And when I got to the back of the stage and was walking off, a man comes rushing up to me and hands me his card and says he's a big manager in the music industry, and and he wants me to come to his office and play the song the next day oh. for one of his artists. And I, I couldn't believe it. It was so random that at church, yeah, I might it might connect me to getting the song recorded. So the next morning, I was in his office, and there were a few people gathered around. He had me sitting in this little room, and he invites this singer named Joe Diffie, who was very popular mm, yeah. at the time, and sure. he had a bunch of songs and al the albums out. And Joe comes walking in, sits down there, and I start, he's like, play the song for Joe. I start singing the song, and when I get to the bottom of the first verse, the lyric says, by the way, my name's Joe. <laughs> and I went, I, I just, inside, I'm singing the song thinking, this is genius. Like, this <laughs> yeah. guy, this is perfect. The guy's name is Joe. <laughs> I never even thought about it. Right. And, and I sing all those songs, and it made me more excited. I'm singing the song through, I get to the very end, and and at the very end of the song, it says, I love you, Joe. And it's this, this twist ending. Mm. And, and the guy, and I, it could have gone any different direction, could have changed my life in that moment. And then there was silence. And, that, and then Joe Diffie looks at me, like stands up, pats me on the leg and says, nice song, kid. Walks out the door and that's the end of that story. <laughs> it would be two or three more years before I, you know, that song got recorded and at least another year or so before anything of mine got recorded. Wow. But what I love about that, that story is that I had a shot yeah, and yeah. God could have done something amazing or he could not. And I, I love those moments and mm. I try not to run ahead of myself <laughs> so that I get disappointed. Hmm. Instead, I just stay excited about the chance. Right. And um, and there's been a lot of those. Sometimes they work out. Sometimes they don't. Well, your first hit as a writer came when Colin Ray took your song "Someone You Used to Know" to number three on the Billboard Country Chart in 1998, um, and went to number one on most of the other industry charts. Like a friend, like a fool, like some guy you knew in school. Didn't we love? Didn't we share? Don't you even care I know we said we were 
Talk about the experience of having that initial success and what kind of impact it had on your life and career. Yeah, it was incredible. And it was incredible because not only did the song get recorded and do really well, I I got to be part of that process. There, The company, Columbia at the time, Epic Records, they would invite me in every Monday afternoon with all the promotion team while they would get the numbers. Hmm. And they had a bunch of songs out at the time and they would, they would be following ours. Wow. And, would be like, oh, it's at 27, and then the following week it's at 24, and then it's at 23. And, and it was just the funnest experience yeah, to be part cool. of that with these people that I, I would have never even dreamed I could be in the room with. Yeah. And so when it went number one, I think that that whole team of folks, they were rooting for me as much as I was rooting for for Colin. And, and in the end, I, I live out here about an hour south of Nashville in an old farmhouse, and that the royalties from that song bought the house that we live in hmm. that really started started uh, laying the groundwork for the story that that God would end up telling with my life and my wife's life. Yeah. Um, and, and you mentioned before that song, The Chain of Love, which went on to become another number one hit yes. with Clay Walker in 1999. You don't owe me a thing I've been there too And someone wants help me out just the way I'm helping you If you really want to pay me back Here's what you do Don't let the chain of love end with you and That really established you as more than a one-hit wonder and kind of solidified the path of a long-term career as a songwriter. Um, you know, and, and we'd seen up to this point in your life, not everything had worked out, you know, like a bed of roses and, and there had even been some, a string of broken relationships prior to meeting and falling in love with Joey. Yeah. Um, and I get the feeling that you two were meant to be together and, and that you would have met regardless of your career paths, but the circumstances of your meeting were a direct result of the fact that you were a songwriter. Tell us how that happened. It's not just a series of broken relationships. It's years and years and years. You know, while I was being a, while I was a single father of my my two daughters, mm. I was also trying to find um, happiness mm. in my own life and and not doing a good job of it. And so, for a lot of years, even even when I started having success as a songwriter, I was I was as corrupt and empty inside. I was always a good guy, but down deep, you know, when no one's there and you're all alone. I was hurting a lot mm. and lonely and yeah. and felt like these things that I thought were going to bring me happiness, they, they didn't bring one ounce more of happiness or joy or peace to me. Mm. And so not long after that, I, I, was, I was always working and trying to find my faith and trying to figure out what it was that God wanted from me and how it was that he was actually going to come into my life and and I, I had gone to churches and Bible studies and, and did through all those years on and off. But it didn't happen the way that I thought it would happen. I thought it would happen where I just, you know, he would hit me with a brick and all of a sudden I'd have this aha moment, mm-hmm. see the light, get baptized, and then and then all of a sudden I'd be different right. and be filled with joy and light. And But it wasn't that way. Instead, I got baptized twice and there was still no light. And I went to a gazillion Bible studies, and I prayed and prayed and hoped, and it didn't come around until really kind of my high high point and low point in my life when things were going really incredible music-wise, and then uh, my heart was just breaking at the same time. Mm. Empty. I I finally just turned it all over to God, and, and it ended up being really more of a process where I just started to trust him and and walk down a different path than I'd ever walked before. And and then things started happening. Nothing it was almost as if for thirty three years you're you're asleep and then one day you wake up and nothing's the same again. Mm. And it, it didn't yeah. happen over one day, but it when you look back at it you just realize that was that was the place where everything turned or it started turning sure. and after a couple of years of really just working on my character and learning to just be happy with just god and not not needing not needing to be fulfilled right now 
when he felt like I was ready, he, he let Joey appear in my life. Mm. And, and he, he also did it in a way where it didn't show up like I thought it would. Like I thought there was going to be bells and whistles and, and instead it was more like, um, like, hmm, this is unusual. <laughs> and this girl, she happened to see me play at the Bluebird Cafe and, and, um, it was almost like God had spoken to her in that moment and said, this is the man you're going to spend the rest of your life with. Wow. Um, and that was around, I guess it must have been around uh, 1999. And so, but in that in that room, I actually later in the show, I introduced my daughters to the audience. And so Joey, Joey thought to herself, well, darn, all the good ones are taken. <laughs> and so two years goes by and I don't really even know anything about this, but two years goes by and she hears my name again. And uh, she works for a horse vet clinic and they were going to be going, one of her doctors was going to go see a songwriter show and heard that I was going to be playing there. And Joey said, Rory, um, I, I, uh, she, he, she told him this story and, and said, if he wasn't married, I, I was pretty sure he was supposed to be the man I'm going to spend the rest of my life with. And, and that doctor said, well, he's not married. He's a single father of those little girls. And so Joey showed up at that show just to see if what she felt before was actually still there. And it was. Oh, and so, you know, through a series of events after that, we we start getting to know each other. And she tells me that story. The very first thing she ever says is, is that she had seen me play and, and that that I'm the one that she's supposed to spend the rest of her life with. Whoa. <laughs> and I had never heard of anything like that. No one had <laughs> yeah. ever, I write songs about things like that, but this isn't real stuff. So yeah. it was so bizarre. I didn't actually take it very seriously, <laughs> but I started really paying attention. And in time, God, you know, moved our, our lives into a place to where we started spending time together. And, and almost immediately we, right after we started dating, we got engaged and got married and, and trusted him and now here it is 15 years later and and i'm in awe of what he's done with our marriage and our life that's incredible that's an incredible story already yeah well on the calendar we have bc and ad and i think you would probably agree that you could divide your own life into two segments uh before you met joey and after you met joey um and what strikes me is that you were actually writing songs under the name rory lee when you first came to Nashville. And not too long after marrying Joey, you went back to using your real name, Rory Feek. Um, And you talk in the book about a a difficult conversation with Joey that ultimately led to that decision, um, which will encourage our our listeners to to read for themselves. Um, But what I want to ask is a question that came up for me when listening to your 2003 hit, The Truth About Men, by Tracy Bird, um, also featuring Andy Griggs, Montgomery Gentry, and Blake Shelton on that song. Well, that's the truth about men Yeah, that's the truth about us We like to hunt and golf on our days off Scratch and spit and cuss And no matter what line we hand you We come dragging in We ain't wrong We ain't sorry And it's probably gonna happen And, And that song is one that is credited to Rory Lee Um, And one of the prominent lines in the chorus is, no matter what line we give you and we come crawling in, we ain't wrong, we ain't sorry, and it's probably going to happen again. And even though that song is intended as uh, a fun, you know, tongue-in-cheek kind of thing, I would imagine that the Rory Feek of 2017 might write that differently than the Rory Lee of a decade and a half ago, you know, particularly given a comment in your book that reads, I think I've spent too much of my life trying to write great songs and not enough time trying to be a great man. Um, do you think of Rory Lee and Rory Feek as almost two different guys? No, no, I, I, and <laughs> your your assumption is is completely wrong. I would write that song today, really? unfortunately. Huh. Um, I, I understand why you say that, but you got to realize that um, not only did I write the truth about men, you know, as Rory Lee, because that's what I went by then, which is my my middle name. Yeah. But I also wrote Chain of Love mm. as Rory Lee. That's right. what's that's what's on those albums, and and lots and lots of other songs that were incredible family songs or faith songs or whatever. Yeah. So. No, the the thing, and this is kind of a funny thing, when my wife started having a, well, when my wife and I 
started getting the opportunity to have a music career together. Um, and even even before that, when Joey was working on it, there was this strange thing going on where I thought that, uh, you know, you had to leave one behind to embrace the other. Mm. You could only be one thing and not the other. You, you're either strong in your faith, strong in your family values, or you're human. Mm. And what happened was, Joey and I, of all people, we we get cast on a TV show and we have sort of this breakout success in 2008 together as a duo based upon a song about cheating, <laughs> about uh, the husband cheating on the wife. And Joey, when she's on stage, I mean, she's pointing at me and laughing and, you know, had her finger pointed at me. And and at first, when we were doing that, I was thinking, oh, my God, this is a disaster. <laughs> Jesus, sing songs about how amazing our marriage is. Right. Sure. But what I quickly realized is we're human. Mm. And there, I'm, I'm, a, I'm a man and a husband and a boy. And so I'm always going to make my wife laugh. I'm, and that's part of the truth about men is that that's the truth. I mean, that's how men are wired. It's not the best part of men. We got to work on it so that we don't, you know, that's not how we live all the time. Hmm. But what ended up happening because, because God used our career, well, he used a song that was so tongue in cheek and not about us to launch us. And then we, we could just fill albums full of songs about heart and love and faith and family, and then also songs that are really funny and suggestive and whatever they are, those things normally don't live together well, but we just, Mm. he just opened a door for us to be honest. And in every show we've ever played, you know, we, we've, we've been that way. You'll, you'll hear, you would hear us sing songs about how powerful and how amazing our love is and how much we love God. And then you would hear another song about, you know, that how I got famous is by sleeping my way to the top. <laughs> but it's really about that I couldn't get famous until I got married Joey, and now I sleep my way to the top. <laughs> but it's, it's a really, really funny, funny song. But I think the, the moral of it is just that people are starving for, for both, which mm. is you can have a strong faith and, and be trying to be a great man and still be relatable to others. Yeah. It doesn't, you right. know, I, I, my fear, I mentioned in the book, somebody else brought this up to me, like one of my fears was if I really, really turn everything over and I give God my life and I become a Christian like most of the Christians that I've met, I am going to be this neutered, half a man, vanilla, with no character and no personality. I'm not talking about character, right. not, you know, not that character <laughs> and no personality. Um, and I didn't want that. That was actually my biggest fear. Mm. I would have the most boring life of all. Right. But instead, I realized that that's not the case. You know, God doesn't neuter us. He just empowers us, mm. and he fills us with light. And for some reason, God has done some amazing things in our lives, in our marriage, in our music. Yeah. But he's let us be human at the same time. Yeah. And I think that's even part of the book is, there's no before, you know, the guy, the before, the Rory Lee before Joey and the Rory Feek after Joey. It's the same guy. Mm. He, he's just trying to figure out how to be a good guy, and he's doing the best he can. Yeah. He's just doing better today, huh. hopefully today. But, but there's tomorrow. I'm still working on it. <laughs> well, your first hit under the name Rory Feek was Blake Shelton's Some Beach, which also hit number one in Billboard, uh, and just fell just shy of the top 20 on the pop charts. Some beach Somewhere There's a big umbrella Casting shade over an empty chair Palm trees are growing And warm breezes blowing I picture myself right there On some beach Tell us a bit about the story behind that song. Well, again, this is a strange, strange story about how God works. I was a huge Paul Overstreet fan oh, yeah. pretty much all of my life. I knew all of his songs. I knew him as an artist. And when I moved to Nashville, he was probably above everyone else, the writer that I wanted to meet, the yeah. guy that I wanted to get a chance to write songs with. 
and I would see him around every once in a while and, and never met him. Um, but I, I dreamed of being friends with him and writing songs. And I had been writing songs like Chain of Love and a number of other uh, family songs, and it's where, where my heart was, the things that I loved the most. So I thought, well, when if God ever opens that door and he lets me write songs and I get to meet Paul and we get to write songs together, we're going to team up and write some amazing family things. Hmm. And I meet Paul, I come to his house, and he has six children, and he's an amazing guy, and his wife's amazing. And we sit down to write songs, and the absolute opposite happened. Huh. The first hmm. song we we wrote was called You Never Get Too Old to Do It. <laughs> Basically, this really sweet little story about grandma and grandpa and right. how they're sneaking away. And, you know, it's this really <laughs> sweet, funny story. <laughs> Not bad, but, I mean, the title makes it sound like it's terrible. Yeah. But what happened was Paul desperately needed to laugh. Yeah. He had He had held that flag up so high for so long. And he he needed to laugh, and I think I was one of those people in his life that could write fun and tongue-in-cheek songs. Mm, right. And um, and so we wrote some beach the same way. It was a it was really just him and I having a good time. And um, but that song, not long after we recorded it, or we we wrote and demoed it, it got recorded by Blake Shelton and. Um, and it's been a, a real blessing for us. We we actually used the, the royalties from some beach to build some barn huh. on our farm that was supposed to be just a, a 70 by 40 barn that I could tinker with old cars on. And ultimately, right. that's that's the barn we used to film our television shows oh, wow. and, and became a concert hall and everything mm. else. But it was all because of some beach. You know, it's funny you mentioned that about Paul Overstreet and for all the amazing songs he's written, I mean, forever and ever, Forever and Ever, Amen, and so many others. The one that I remember the most, I saw him at a writer's night, and he played a song called She Ain't at Home on the Range, (laughs) (laughs) which, I mean, it's been 25 years since I heard that, and that one always sticks with me, and I thought it was hilarious. Well, that's the part of Paul that I think is great, is you will, uh, if you see him and he sings on the other hand, and when you say nothing at all, you will, you will, um, you'll just, you know, your heart will be warmed. Yeah. But then he'll sing a song that we wrote about his Willie Nelson impersonation called She Only Loves Me for My Willie. <laughs> and you will lay on the floor laughing so <laughs> right. hard because he's so good at it. And it's so funny. And and I think that's something that Paul has really enjoyed, just having fun. That's the neat thing is people like that. They Paul can write you know, the whole range of songs. But it, yeah. it's a weird thing because humor is... I think the world's just got, there's so much to worry about it. It really helps people to smile, and Paul is really good at doing it. Well, you wrote nearly a half dozen more top 40 singles that charted in the mid-2000s, including Blaine Larson's How Do You Get That Lonely and uh, Crystal Shawanda's You Can Let Go. But your career really took a different turn in 2008 when you and Joey were selected to participate in a CMT reality competition called Can You Duet? And your success on that show led to the debut Joey and Rory album, The Life of a Song, which was a top 10 album uh, that spawned the single Cheater, Cheater. Liar, liar. Did you buy her whiskey all night long? Did you hide your ring in the pocket of your jeans? Or did you just keep it on? When the deed was done and you had your fun, did you think I would know? Tell me, cheater, cheater, where'd you meet that no good white trash hoe? You and Joey were both credited as writers on that song. Um, Talk about the dynamic of writing songs with someone you also share your life with. Well, I I can talk about it probably from Joey's viewpoint better. Joey, she would never consider herself a songwriter. She she would tell you, I only write with my husband Mm. when my husband is with me. And and so Joey and I and Wynn Barbell or Joey and I and Heidi would write songs together. Um, My wife, the thing about writing with Joey is, it's like, imagine you could write songs with Patsy Cline, mm. and her tool that she brings to the writing appointment is so extraordinary, it changes the room. Mm. And that's the way it was with Joey. If we were writing a song, like Tim Johnson and I sat down one day with Joey and started writing a song called That's Important to Me, and it's one thing if you could sit in a room and that person throws out some lines, Joey starts telling us about the things that are important to her. It's another thing when she starts singing them. Yeah. The song becomes something 
very, very special. And so right. I've always loved writing with Joey because because the song came to life mm-hmm. in a way where when you're just songwriters in a room, you're you're imagining one of your heroes singing the song mm-hmm. someday. It, it, everything lined up sure. and came to be, and your song got recorded. But with Joey, you could always feel in the room that, that your hero is, is singing it right now. Right there. Yeah. And, yeah, it's it's pretty amazing. And you, at cool. the time, of course, when we wrote all those songs, we had no idea that, that she would become a, you know, a, a really well-known singer. Yeah. Um, we hoped that would happen, but we had no idea. Well, the success continued. In 2009, you had another number one hit with Easton Corbin's A Little More Country Than That. I just want to make sure you know just who you're getting under this old hat. Cause girl, I'm not the kind of two-time or play games behind your back. I'm a little more country than that. And based on how you describe your life and your values in your book, this song seems kind of autobiographical about, you know, simple country living. As your public profile increased with the release of a new Joey and Rory album each year, a popular TV show on the RFD network, did it become more challenging for you guys to maintain this simple, traditional country life that appeals to you so strongly? Not really. It, we, we uh, early on, we did these Overstock.com commercials, and when, when we were doing them, the creative director for Overstock came to our farm and to our little cafe. And he didn't just make commercials. He sat at our kitchen table and poured into us, into me in particular. Hmm. And he mentored me. He was an older fella from South Africa. He loved country music and he saw something in us that even that we didn't see. And he would, he would say things to us like, I know you think you're country singers, but you're not. Hmm. He said, when people see you and they hear you singing on a stage, they're not going to be thinking about that you're singers or they're not going to be thinking about your song. All they're going to think about is love. Huh. And that's what, that's what you guys yeah. are in front of people. Yeah. This was a long time before people really discovered that and before we discovered it. But he would tell yeah. us that and he would say, Rory, you, you make videos on your own and you don't have any money. You don't even have a nice camera. But your <laughs> instinct and what you do on your own is better and more important than if you spend a hundred thousand dollars and you have the biggest team and do it for you because it's authentic and pure and so he would say do do as much of that as you can and avoid everything else be pure and honest and and uh, and protect don't protect your brand protect who you are Mm. and so through that you know we grew a brand that that we didn't have to worry about because we didn't have this persona on stage and then this other life when you were off stage, they were one and the same. The thing that became a challenge was uh, my wife, you know, desperately wanted to live a simple life. And when you're traveling around all the time and having a successful music career, you you find yourself singing more about it than you're actually getting to live it. Yeah. And so mm. as time went on, I, I felt compelled. And um, I felt like I was convicted in a way that my wife desperately needed to be able to be at home and grow her garden and mm. raise chickens and, and make yeah. her family meals here at home. So we've, we just sort of worked on finding our way home, and that's how the television show happened. And again, that just made life easier to um, to make sure that we stayed rooted, even while success was growing. It was growing because we were rooted, mm. and um, and it wasn't threatening what we were doing or what the future was because it was all built around where we were and who we were. And so even today, I, I still like to this moment, I almost do nothing except at the farm everything that we've built is our own little cottage industry there you know, we've been, as i did the audiobook for for this book that's out now we did it right at our farm right in our concert hall yeah. and you know and it's a blessing to get to do it that way but it it really came from those early years when alan button and 
all those folks poured into it. Well, after your daughter, Indiana, was born in 2014, you and Joey um, decided to take a year off to Homestead and for you to focus on your blog, This Life I Live. And you say in your book that you had not been writing songs for a year or more at that point when you decided to just pull back a little. Um, And obviously, Joey's cancer diagnosis meant a very different year than what you had planned. but you had also already traveled a long road by that point, from songwriter to artist, director, blogger, now a memoirist, um, and all the other various hats that you have worn and continue to wear. Um, what role does songwriting play in your life now as compared to, say, 10 years ago? Well, when I took a year off and I, I said I hadn't been writing songs probably since 2013, I'm in the same place now. I, I still don't write. I don't write any songs. I haven't written. I don't think I've written anything really since then. Uh, if I have, you know, maybe I helped somebody else write something a few years ago. But I definitely haven't written any songs in the last two years, and I don't have any plans to write any songs right now. Mm. I'm just, you know, I'm basically retired from the music business. Yeah. Um, raising the baby and. Mm what God has in store. I don't know what the future holds. I right. I don't want to say this is how it's always going to sure. be because I, I want to do whatever God calls me to do. But right now I don't feel called to be on a stage and sing without my wife, and I also don't feel called to write songs uh, for other people to sing. Right. Maybe, maybe I'll feel different down the road, but right now there is no songwriting. Writing the blog is it's just very similar to songwriting or writing a book. Mm. It's really similar to writing songs. And so that, right. that fulfills me creatively. Well, and three of the last four albums that you and Joey released came out on the Gaither music group label, which of course is Bill Gaither's company. And Bill has been a guest on our show before, which was a real honor. Um, he, he's kind of the godfather of contemporary Christian writing. Um, you know, aligning yourself with guys like Harlan Howard and Bill Gaither, I mean, it says something about your appreciation for, for mentors and your understanding of, of how the greatness of the past kind of informs the present. Um, you know, when you were writing country songs, did you ever feel the tension between country music's traditions as opposed to the direction that so much of it has kind of been moving toward in the last, you know, decade or so? Sure. Yeah, we, we feel it all the time. It's it's here right now. I mean, every every songwriting friend I have, they feel it, and, um, yeah. you know, they, it's what they talk about all the time. Sure. And Joey and I felt it 10 years ago. We, we you know, we love traditional storytelling, and we didn't necessarily love a lot of what was coming out. And so, but ra- we, we're just not really built in a way where we just complain about it. We tend to mm. just say, okay, well, you know, there, there's probably lots of people like us that long for story songs and long for production that's a little simpler so that the lyric can be out front. Mm. And we just tried to provide that. Right. And so, and strangely, you know, part of our career is built because we kept doing something that most people weren't doing because there wasn't there wasn't any way to reach them. Radio wasn't playing those kind of songs. Um, so we just found our own way, and you, you'd be surprised. Although we had hadn't had a song on the radio in years and years, if you came to our concert and you heard me sing "Bible in a Belt" or Joey start singing "That's Important to Me" or "Born to Be Your Woman," the the crowd would erupt into mm. applause as soon as the song started, as if it were a huge hit on the radio, right. yeah. because they were so familiar with it on television or just through our albums and and that was pretty fulfilling for us but for the most part we tried to not to get down heart you know disheartened by the state of the industry i'm actually encouraged when the industry is bad the opportunity is good yeah (laughs) well i want to ask you we've obviously talked uh, about a lot of hits but um i want to ask you about a rory feek deep cut in 1999, John Michael Montgomery recorded a song of yours called Your Love Lingers On. Long after the glow has faded from the moonlight And the stars have given way to greet the dawn Long after the night has faded to sunlight your love lingers on. 
Now that was not released as a single, but obviously was an album cut, and that's one that you wrote with the legendary Waylon Jennings. How did that come about? Well, I'm glad you you mentioned that. That's a story I I love. When I was writing for Harlan, and you you just were talking about that somehow I, I happened to be in the room and be around from Bill Gaither to Harlan Howard. Yeah, that that was always a a very conscious decision. And even today, I still do the same thing. Uh, on the 22nd of this this month, I'm doing a t- TV taping. I won't be performing, but I'll be there with a lot of my heroes, a lot of older heroes, all the way to, you know, like Randy Travis and wow. and a lot of those guys. And I just love that. Uh, you know, I want to be one someday. My hmm. father wanted to be one someday. So hmm. if that's if that's where the bar is, just hang around the bar and you'll you'll... <laughs> find yourself trying to be the bar or yeah. and you know what someday who knows maybe you'll wake up and you actually you're the bar yeah I, I don't know how that works but i just even to this day i still want to surround myself with those folks that's great so that's what happened back then when i was writing for harlan he always had people around him that were his friends from the 50s and 60s and 70s so chet yeah. it wouldn't be unusual to be at his office and Chet Atkins was there, or Bobby Bear, or Jerry Reed, or, you know, Johnny Cash, or whoever it happens to be, they were all around, and one of them that was around quite often was Waylon Jennings, Mm. and Waylon had heard some songs that I'd written, Harlan was always championing me and telling people about the songs, and then also the song pluggers and Melanie who worked there, they were also doing the same thing, so I got set up to write a song with Waylon. Man one day and I drove to his house. They gave me the address and I had a 56 Chevy at the time. I still have it. And that's what I was driving. And I pulled up in Waylon's driveway and there's the General Lee from Dukes of Hazard <laughs> sitting in his driveway. Yeah. And I walk in the house and Jesse Coulter meets me at the door and brings me in the kitchen. And I sat with Waylon and we have breakfast while Jesse makes us breakfast and we sit and talk. And we're just visiting, and it was just kind of a surreal experience to be in their house with them, right. getting to know them. And um, and as we got, and then at some point, Waylon said, "Well, Hoss, you want to go in the other room and see if we can't write us a song?" <laughs> and so he stands up, and as we're walking away, his wife Jessie grabs my arm and she says, "Could you see if you could write something with him that?" could actually get recorded rather than another song about what a bad boy he thinks he is. And I, I love that because she was just like any other wife, yeah. just like any other husband. Right. Except when I walked in the living room, there were Grammys on right. their end tables right. instead of coasters. And there was a glass case with Buddy Holly's motorcycle in it because Whoa. Uh, Waylon had played bass for Buddy Holly and, yeah. and all those years and um, all that stuff. So, Jeez. It was unusual, but when we sat down together, that was the song we wrote that day called Your Love Lingers On. And it was a song that I had the verse and chorus, and I brought it in with me. And Waylon worked on it with me, and we finished writing it. It got recorded right away, and it never came out as a single. But I, I always loved, I mostly loved the story behind the song. I like the song, it. but I especially love the story behind it. Yeah. yeah, I think eight-year-old me would have just passed out upon seeing the General Lee in the driveway. <laughs> that, that probably would have yeah. knocked me out. <laughs> um, well, Waylon became a, a family friend, and so he he would come to our apartment complex for my little girl's birthday and sit at the swimming pool at the picnic table with us just because he was that kind of guy. He was just an amazing mm. person. Now, my kids, my kids had no idea who he was at the time. Now... When they look back at, you know, time and pictures that they had with Waylon Jennings and remembering Waylon and Jesse sending Christmas presents and stuff to him, they think it's the greatest thing in the world yeah, and they wish they, that he were around now. But it, wow. back then they had no idea. Yeah. Well, you just recently won your first Grammy Award for your album, Hymns That Are Important to Us. Talk about what making that album meant for you and your reaction to the industry recognition and the validation that a Grammy represents. First off, it's you know we we won a Grammy award. I mm. I think a lot of it has to do with Joey. Joey won a Grammy award, and I won a Grammy award with mm. her. Yeah, and um, and I I never I never forget that the only reason I'm here, the only reason I 
I've been able to write the book that I, I've written or anything else is because she's made it so. Mm. Her and I together have been given an amazing uh, life and gift of, of this legacy of music. Yeah. And being able to make this album, especially in the time that that we had with Joey going through the return of cancer and all the difficult days, that made the album even more special. Yeah. Joey always wanted to make an album full of hymns, and um, and it wasn't actually she had made that decision before we we realized that the cancer had come back. It's just that once it was, she was diagnosed with stage four cancer, it became just more tricky to make it happen. Yeah. And but even through the whole process, when we went and recorded after her surgery, and then as we did the vocals in hotel rooms while she's doing chemo and radiation in Georgia. Um, we didn't think it was going to be our last album. We just yeah. thought it was going to be an important album. Mm. But we really held out hope that God was going to heal her of this and that she would get through it. Mm. So when it worked out that by the time the album was completed and it was really in the final weeks of Joey's life that she could hold the album in her hands, it made it even more special. Mm. Yeah. And then, of course, a year later, for us to win a Grammy Award for that album, Well, Rory, I want to thank you for your time today and thank you for your your honesty and your openness to talk about some of the hard times and the good times, life, career, and family. And and I really want to encourage everyone listening to go find Rory's book, This Life I Live, and check it out. It's a great read. Uh, It's inspiring. Um, And so thank you for writing it. Thank you for your music. And thank you for talking with us today. Thanks for visiting with me. I enjoyed talking to you if you're ever down south of Nashville. Come have lunch or breakfast with me sometime. (laughs) We'll do (laughs) it. Sounds good. Thanks for listening. We'd love to stay connected with you, so please sign up for our email list at songcraftshow.com, like us on Facebook, and follow us on Twitter. You can find us by searching for Songcraft Show. And we look forward to getting together again with you next time for Songcraft, Conversations with Great Songwriters. He was driving home one evening in his beat-up Pontiac when an old lady flagged him down, her Mercedes.